You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Lise Grande and I am the head of the United States Institute of Peace. USIP was established by Congress in 1984 as a public nonpartisan national institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict abroad. On behalf of the Institute, we are delighted to welcome you to our bipartisan congressional dialogue series, a signature USIP initiative that brings together leaders from both political parties to discuss national security issues. Today, we are honored to host Representatives Amy Barra, the Chair, and Steve Shabbat, the Ranking Member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee's Subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and Nonproliferation. Our topic today is the impact of Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine on the Indo-Pacific region. Russia's invasion is shocking. We're witnessing an assault under false pretenses on the sovereignty and people of Ukraine by a founding member of the United Nations and a permanent member of the UN Security Council. The effect of Russia's invasion is reverberating around the world. The mounting evidence of atrocities, including war crimes and crimes against humanity are a tragedy for Ukraine and a test of accountability within the international system. The impact on the Indo-Pacific from the role of China as a major power to India's return to its historic position as a leader of the non-aligned movement will probably be felt for generations. These are just some of the reasons why this bipartisan congressional dialogue is so important today and why we are so fortunate to have Congressman Barra and Chabot with us. Congressman Barra represents California's 7th District and serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee where he chairs the subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and Nonproliferation. As the co-chair of the Congressional Korea Caucus and as a member of the House Taiwan Caucus, Congressman Barra is committed to building and maintaining strong U.S. relationships in the Indo-Pacific region. Congressman Shabit represents Ohio's first district and serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where he is the ranking member on the subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and Nonproliferation. As a co-chair of the Congressional India and Taiwan Caucuses, Congressman Shabat is committed to promoting the role of the United States in the security and stability of the Indo-Pacific region. Representative Berra, Representative Shabat, thank you for being with us today. We're honored to invite Congressman Berra to offer remarks, followed by Congressman Shabat. After that, we'll have a moderated discussion. We look forward to the audience joining this conversation on Twitter using the hashtag at BipartisanUSIP. Maybe please hand the floor to Representative Barron. Lisa, thank you um, for, for that introduction. And thank you, um, U.S. Institute of Peace, for the, the work that you do in a bipartisan way to you know, promote peace and stability and, and um, democracy around the, the world. It's also my honor to to be able to share share this virtual stage with my good friend um, Congressman Shabbat, who we both had the privilege of. You know, I have the privilege of being chair right now, and Steve's the ranking member. But when Steve was chair of the committee, I had the privilege of acting as a ranking member. So I think we've got a great partnership on on you know promoting um, 
American values and as well as you know, looking to, to, to support that peace and stability in the, the region. Um, I'm going to keep my comment short because I also know that we potentially will get interrupted by, by votes, as is the nature of um, being here on the House. But you know, let's talk a bit about the, the subject on hand, the disruption of peace and stability on the European continent by the, the unprovoked actions of Vladimir Putin and Russia in invading a, a sovereign nation, um, Ukraine, and how that really has changed the world, not just in Russia, but also the reverberations that, that we will see in the Indo-Pacific and, and, and elsewhere, as you know, we'll get into in the, the question and answer portion of this. You know, we can be very proud as the United States of you know, some of the work we did in the 75 years post-World War II rebuilding Europe, you know, working with Japan to create this um, you know, dominant economy, working with the, the Koreans post-World um, War II, taking it from one of the poorest countries in the world 40 years ago to um, one of the most developed economies in the world. And, and even the, the framework in the Indo-Pacific through stability and development, where many nations were able to prosper, including China. Um, that's been disrupted and that framework, as much as we'd like to go back to where the world was a few months ago, I don't think we, we can. And I think we have to rethink you know, the implications of the unprovoked actions that Vladimir Putin and the Russians have taken in, in Ukraine. And you know the, the damage and destruction that we haven't seen, frankly, since um, you know, you know, World War II on, on that continent. Yeah, we'll we'll get into this, but it is important to think about the lessons learned. You know, as we think about the Indo-Pacific region, the region that that Steve and I have jurisdiction over. How does China look at this? What lessons does, does China take away from it? And I know we'll get into that, but also what lessons have we learned, as well as you know the the, the coalition of nations. You know, Europe, NATO's come come together, but also Japan, um, you know, Australia, and. We've watched, and if there's time, we can discuss you know, how, how India has tried to, to maintain that neutrality. But as a senior member of the Quad and an important member of our, our strategy in the Indo-Pacific, and as a country that has its own territorial integrity issues with a northern neighbor, you know, this is a, a time for India also as, as you know, growing world power to, to also choose, choose sides. So, you know, I'll, I'll stop with that so we have plenty of time to have an interactive conversation and pass it back to you, Lisa. So thank you for doing this. Congressman, thank you so much for your in, your interesting opening reflections. And if we may please um, hand the floor to Congressman Shabit for his first comments. Uh, thank you, Lisa, and thank you to uh, the USIP for holding uh, this particular forum here today. And it's good to be here with uh, uh, my good friend, uh, Ami Barra, the chairman of the committee. Uh, and uh, I'm just glad that I was really nice to Ami when I was chair and he was my ranking member uh, because now I'm his number two, I'm the ranking member and he's actually been very nice to me as well. And we work together in a bipartisan manner, which is a bit unusual uh, in Congress. So uh, that's a good thing. A month ago, um, the world watched, uh, let's face it, in, in, in horror as Vladimir Putin uh, began an unwarranted and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Um, his war of choice shattered the peace in Europe and demonstrated just what a brute he truly is and how brave and resilient and inspiring 
uh, the people of Ukraine are. Um, the question on a lot of people's minds is whether Putin's illegal acts will encourage other authoritarian regimes across the globe to act with such impunity uh, on their territorial ambitions. Truth be told, only time will tell uh, the full implications of Putin's transgressions uh, for the rest of the globe. However, any discussion of Ukraine's meaning uh, for the Indo-Pacific uh, begins in, in Beijing. While the Chinese Communist Party's strategy may evolve, they are pursuing the same gray zone tactics um, against several countries in the region uh, that, that Russia uh, is engaged in. This includes military activity to advance baseless territorial claims against, for example, Japan, Taiwan, uh, Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, and India. Um, such claims make China the only country likely to attempt what Putin has done in Ukraine. And this aggression places the CCP squarely at odds with the clear desire of countries throughout the Indo-Pacific to focus on trade and development and improving, improving their economies and the, uh, the quality of life for their citizens. That, that, that's what they want to be focused on, not a new arms race. But in many ways, unfortunately, that's what Russia and China are and have been doing for some time now. At the very center of the PRC's territorial ambitions stands uh, President Xi's desire to annex Taiwan by force. Taiwan's strategic location would greatly enhance the PRC's capacity to project power uh, into both the Pacific and into Southeast Asia. It would also imperil our ability uh, to support our allies and partners, calling into serious question our status as a Pacific power. And as the world's leading maker of semiconductors, Taiwan offers a key technology necessary for the new Cold War that the CCP seems bent on waging against us, whether we want to engage in a Cold War or not, they are starting one. Most importantly, Taiwan's vibrant Chinese-speaking democracy represents a direct ideological threat to the CCP's legitimacy. It's no wonder uh, then that the armed wing of the CCP, the People's Liberation Army, has been preparing to invade Taiwan, let's face it, for decades now. Um, in light of these CCP ambitions, I think the biggest implication of Putin's invasion for the Indo-Pacific and for Washington is that Ukraine must serve as a wake-up call, uh, that we must de deter Xi from following Putin's playbook. Hopefully he's learning the right lesson uh, here. Uh, don't bite off more than you can chew. And hopefully that's what he's learning, not that aggression is something that's actually going to work and that you're going to benefit from. Um, and, and that's why I hope and pray that we don't uh, unnecessarily um, and prematurely uh, pressure uh, the, the Ukrainians to settle with the Russians having gained any land or particularly significant amounts of Ukrainian land. So that's, uh, we want peace, but we don't want Putin to benefit uh, from his hostile actions toward a freedom-loving, peace-loving country, Ukraine. So thank you very much, and I look forward to participating here. Uh, Congressman, thank you very much. And both of you have raised um, the very interesting set of questions about what's similar 
between Russia's behavior in Ukraine and China's behavior in Taiwan? And what's different? Are they both an example of the same kind of thing? Are they being driven by different dynamics? So what's the same about those two parallel tracks and what's different about them? Congressman Barrett? You know, I, I think what's same is, you know, Xi Jinping has been taking China into a very authoritarian direction, consolidating power. You know, you'll, you'll see the Chinese Communist Party's, you know, um, party meetings come, coming up, and I think you'll see a further consolidation, mm -hmm. much as um, Vladimir Putin has been doing over the last two decades in, in Russia. So the internal politics of Russia and China have been very much going in that same direction, um, which is why I think you know, those two leaders have, have grown closer together. Um, you know, clearly, both have stated their ambitions, Mr. Putin, his ambitions to um, take Ukraine, and Xi Jinping's ambitions to um, reunify Taiwan and bring Taiwan back in. So I think that the broad 20,000-foot level it is the same. I think there's logistics differences. Obviously, um, you know, Ukraine is you know connected by land to to um, Russia, whereas you know Taiwan's an island. The geography of Taiwan is different. Taiwan's been a, a thriving democracy, and the people of Taiwan have built this um, you know um, very well developed economy, very integrated economy with with the world. So. Whereas Ukraine was kind of this young democracy, um, but you've seen how, how hard the Ukrainian people have, have fought. Um, so I think there, there are some, some differences there. And um, so I, I think it's important for us to, to, to think about that. You know, other differences are, you know, from the, the U.S. perspective, our economy is not really super integrated with the Russian economy. So it was relatively easy for us to, to disinvest from Russia and for U.S. companies to, to make that decision. That's probably not the case with China or with any of our, our partner nations that, that have come to, together. Um, you know, I think the, the world is pretty integrated with the second largest economy. And that's something that I know Congressman Chabon and I and the subcommittee certainly are, are thinking through, you know, as we think about um, supply chain investments, redundancy, resiliency, how do we not actually, you know, further complicate, you know, the, this integration of economies with, with China in the event that China does take a, an action we disagree with, but rather encourage um, investment in, in, in other regional players or um, reshoring of, of some of those supply chains back to the United States. I also think, um, you know, it, it's not clear what lesson China will take away from, you know, Mr. Putin's actions. I think Vladimir Putin underestimated the, the ability of the, the, the West, Europe, and NATO to come together fairly quickly to coalesce. And I think he's given us a gift. I mean, he's, you know, our NATO partnership is the strongest I've seen in my tenures in, 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 in Congress. And I, I think the, the partnership with the European Union was already budding uh, as you know, concerned about Ukraine, but also about Taiwan. I mean, I've seen the, the EU and the EU parliamentarians take actions against China, but also um, Lithuania's support of Taiwan. And I think those are, those are all things that potentially accelerate. So I would hope that 
you know, Xi Jinping is taking the right lessons away from this that says, you know what, Mr. Putin may have made a, a bad calculation here. It wasn't so easy. The Ukrainian people stood up and you know, chose to fight for their country and their democracy. And, you know, this, this is tragic. It didn't have to happen. Um, as President Zelensky has told us directly, you know, he's perfectly happy to live side by side with Russia and have good relations, but they're not going to live under Russian rule. This is their country. And yeah, I think lessons for the people of Taiwan are also watching how hard the Ukrainians are fighting for their, you know, sovereign ability to determine their path forward. And, you know, we've had those conversations with the Taiwanese and, you know, the people of Taiwan and, you know, I think there's real opportunities moving forward. Um, so not apples to apples, but, you know, some areas that you know, there might be similarities and differences. Congressman, thank you. Congressman Chavez, do you see the, the analogy between Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's potential threat against Taiwan in similar terms or differently? Yeah, I don't want to repeat everything Ami said, obviously, but yes, I mean, there are similarities, there are differences. In the similarity, of course, you have two authoritarian regimes who want to dominate, essentially take over um, smaller, freedom-loving, successful, uh, pro-American, pro-West uh, democracies. Um, and, uh, you know, when you look at, uh, and, and I think Ami's exactly right, this is, this is blown up to a considerable degree uh, in, in uh in Putin's face, and hopefully we're not going to see, or he's, you know, it's blown up in his face and the chief's going to take the right message from what has, what has happened here. Um, and, you know, another similarity is you've got both uh, Russia and China who are trying to make the case that, uh, that neither uh, Taiwan or Ukraine are, are real countries. You know, they, they try to look at them as some sort of other entity. In, in Ukraine's case, um, Putin was entering into this, you know, propaganda that these were just a bunch of Nazis and, and uh, you know, he's trying to reconstitute essentially the old Soviet uh, empire. And he's been somewhat successful in taking land from, from Georgia and, uh, and Crimea in, in Ukraine and the Donbass region um, already. Um, but he's, he's essentially said that, uh, you know, Ukraine is... It, always has been part of us, always will be, uh, et cetera. And, and the, uh, uh, the PRC, of course, is, is, has acted for years like it's just, you know, Taiwan is some breakaway province, which is clearly not uh, the case. Um, so, and, and as far as uh, dissimilarities, obviously, you know, you've got, you've got an, an island versus a landmass, which is much easier to enter into a, a landmass. But our, our ties with Taiwan are... are you know, much closer, obviously, than our ties were with, with Ukraine. Um, you know, and, and with respect to Ukraine, uh, there's been a considerable uh, uh, considerable effort to say, you know, not one inch of, of NATO. Um, and obviously, Ukraine is not part of, uh, part of NATO. Um, so the United States, I think, you know, nobody anticipates we're going to send in U.S. troops there in, in Ukraine. But in Taiwan, it's another matter. You know, we've had this policy of so-called strategic ambiguity with respect to Taiwan for years, which essentially keeps the PRC guessing, well, would the U.S. be there if we act militarily or not? 
Um, the uh, Taiwan's Relations Act says we'll arm them, but it doesn't necessarily say that we'll act military, militarily. That's why I really would much prefer to have something called strategic clarity, where we actually do state that we would be there if Taiwan was, was attacked. And I think uh, it's much less likely uh, that, that China would make the dangerous step of actually attacking if they knew that we would be there and not just speculated uh, yeah. about it. So there's, you know, there are similarities, there are, there are, are, are differences, but, but overall, um, I think the, the similarities are, are pretty striking. Congressman Barry, you mentioned that one of the, the consequences of what's happened with the unprovoked invasion is that Europe has stepped up to a set of security responsibilities that it's talked about for a long time, and now it's taking steps to make sure that it advances them and does so very quickly. But we've seen Germany agree to reach its commitments under NATO. It's increasing its defense spending. You know, it's, it's, um, it's impressive what's happening in Europe. Do we see something very similar happening in Indo-Pacific? Can we see countries, as we are seeing in Europe, start to work very closely together in the face of what we all fear could be Chinese aggression or Chinese spread of their influence? Do you see anything like that, Congressman? Um, I, I do, and and I think we saw it actually pre the uh, invasion of Ukraine. Certainly, the Chinese uh, aggression in the regions not new. We've seen um, what they're doing in the South China Sea with regards to threatening maritime security and freedom of navigation. Some of the gray zone tactics that many of the Southeast Asian nations are, are facing. Um, you know, some of the economic course of measures you know that they've taken against Australia, Japan, you know, South Korea. Um, I think all of those were pushing us closer together. You know, we, I mentioned India, on India's northern border, some of the, the aggressive um, tactics there over territorial rights, as well as you know, some of the, the base placement in the in Indian Ocean um, region. I think we're, we're moving things in the right direction um, and helping us create multilateral coalitions. So that the fact that the Quad is as strong as it ever has been and it's been elevated to the leaders level, I think that's a good thing for um, the region's security, but also um, you know, for, for U.S. strategic interests in, in the, the region. You know, the fact that the, the Japanese and the, the, the Koreans are talking about beefing up their own self-defense capabilities and you know, potentially in Japan, a, a, a discussion about preemptive um, capabilities. I don't think that's just about North Korea. Um, I think that certainly is about the, you know, uh, other other countries in, in the region. Um, the, that, um, you know, that you have a deal like the AUKUS deal that, you know, certainly is, you know, a, about maintaining maritime superiority, but also um, maritime stability. I think that was happening before, um, before the, the invasion of Ukraine. So I think there was a lot that was already in place. And this may accelerate some of those conversations. I, I think what it, one thing it does do is vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. I think um, the, the people of Taiwan, the, the government in Taiwan probably have seen how quickly the um, Ukrainian people have stepped up to defend their country. And you know, some of the preparation that, that went in, into place I'm proud of the, the California National Guard, which trains with the, the Ukrainian military 
So when I talked to our Brigadier General in, in my district in California, where they're headquartered, he's like, we're not surprised that they know how to fight because we've been training them for a, a while. Um, and that's something that, you know, I, th I think Congressman Shabbat and I, along with uh, others, would be supportive of doing additional training with the, the Taiwanese military, but also, you know, having them look at, you know, what their conscription service looks like, what is a, a reserve force look like, what, you know, those are all things that I th we think are necessary. And, and also, when you look at the effectiveness of some of the defensive weaponry that's the Ukrainians have, you know, whether those are stingers or javelin missiles. And, you know, we've had these conversations directly with the Taiwanese. Instead of building a, a submarine, perhaps, you know, have more anti-ship missiles that are much more mobile and movable that, you know, I, I, I use the term strategic deterrence because I think our goal is we haven't changed any of the calculus of how we view Taiwan, you know, we still have a one-China policy, but we also strongly, firmly believe the people of Taiwan should be able to determine their future and will support the people of Taiwan. It's China's aggressive nature that is really changing the, the calculus. And I, I'll, I'll close with this. Um, Mr. Putin will say, well, it was NATO that provoked his actions. I 100% disagree with this. Vladimir Putin chose to do this on his own. He's always said he wanted to do it, and he instigated this. And what we're seeing is his provocation is forcing NATO to now, as you've said, do something that we were never ever able to accomplish, actually fully fund their, their self-defense capabilities. Mr. Putin accomplished something that no um, Republican or Democratic president could, could accomplish. And, you know, I think that is a permanent change. Um, and I think that's a, a good one. So. Vladimir Putin is the one who's changing the tenor and calculus in Europe. Xi Jinping is the one who's been changing the, the calculus and tenor in the Indo-Pacific. And anytime he says, well, I'm just reacting to the Americans, that is absolutely false. We were happy with the framework that was prosperous for all of us in the last um, 40 or 50 years, but he's changed the calculus now. Um, Congressman Shabak, one of the, the interesting issues, you know, when we think about the difference between China and Russia and their aggressive behavior, you know, we are, as Congressman Barrow said, very linked into the Chinese economy. And so the use of sanctions, which we've done very muscularly in the case of Russia, would have different consequences if we did it with China, particularly if China retaliated with some kind of economic sanctions against us. I mean, what, how do you see the use of sanctions? in the case of China and also in Russia, but also are there things that we can be doing to protect our supply chains and to protect the parts of our economy that we don't want to be retaliated against in case we end up going in that direction with China? Yeah, we've clearly become far too dependent on the Chinese supply chain. We saw that at the beginning of, of COVID when obviously they first of all denied uh, that they had anything you know, to do with it starting. And they said it might've been US military over there and that sort of craziness. But we know it started there and then they were, uh, rather than being uh, open and honest so the world could deal with this pandemic and maybe get ahead of it and save a lot of lives, um, they were in the process of cornering the PPE market. And so we were dependent upon that and we're dependent upon them in so many ways, we're dependent upon them in rare earth minerals. They've been cornering the market in Africa and in the Congo and other regions of the world, which we have to be very careful about. We're talking about, you know, 
climate change, and some people uh, obviously uh, see it as a greater emergency than others, but nonetheless, it's something we're dealing with, and, and so we need batteries, uh, and, and they're cornering the market on cobalt and, and a whole lot of things that we need for that and, and, and others. So, um, so we clearly have to be less dependent uh, on China than we are now, and so do our allies um, across the globe. Um, and when it comes to, to sanctions, um, you know, we have to, you know, it's, it's easier relative to, uh, to uh, uh, Russia to get our allies involved there. And, and, and it's working to, to con considerable degree other than the Europeans now are too dependent upon uh, Russian sources of, of energy. That's a, that's a real problem. And that's why the sanctions uh, haven't been as effective as they otherwise could be. But when it comes to China, China, not only us, but our allies are so dependent on China and the supply chain there is that it's going to make it a lot tougher to sanction them if they take military action against Taiwan, for, for example. Uh, and also their economy is so much uh, larger uh, that, uh, you know, the Europe, I think it was, uh, they talked about uh, Russia as being essentially uh, you know, a, a, a gas station, you know, and with a bunch of oil that the rest of the world gets, but not a real country. Um, China is a pretty dynamic economy that much of the world is dependent upon. So, uh, so I'll just leave it there. <laughs> um, I think we've all noticed that in the, the votes in the UN, that there were a number of countries in Asia that abstained. And we'd be very interested in your reflections on what's behind those abstentions. What do they mean? And very importantly for us, what does it mean in our efforts to try and maintain an open, free trading Asia and Indo-Pacific region? Um, Congressman Barra first. Yeah, so um, we, we saw some abstentions from you know, major um, countries that you know, we have strong relationships with or building stronger relationships with. And in this case, I'd, I'd you know, cite India's abstention, um, but also the initial Indonesian uh, you know, abstention. Ultimately, they, they did um, vote for the, the resolution at, at, at the end, but did not you know, vote to condemn Vladimir Putin's actions per se. Um, let's talk about the Indians because I've spent, um, you know, as a senior Indian American member of Congress, obviously spend a lot of time talking to the Indians. I think, you know, we recognize India's dependence and long history of um, getting military hardware and, and other things from the Russians and, you know, their, their need to keep that supply chain open, as they would say, for their own defense. Um, I, I think the bigger concern right now is you know, maybe there were members that were willing to overlook the, the abstention um, on the vote, but now the reports of a, a potential rupee for ruble you know, exchange, which really would undermine the sanctions, um, you know, the, the possibility of increasing their um, purchase of, of energy at discounted rates, which would you know, allow Mr. Putin a lifeline to continue his unprovoked actions and, and you know terroristic actions in, in in Ukraine against the Ukrainian public. That's something that I think if the Indians go down that path, they've enjoyed strong bipartisan support. 
in, in Congress from Democrats and Republicans. Uh, at one time, the, the largest caucus was the, 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 the caucus on Indian and Indian Americans. I think Taiwan, and Steve will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Taiwan caucus now is the, the, the largest demonstrating the bipartisan support mm -hmm. for, for Taiwan. Um, I think damaging that, you know, puts India in a, a difficult place. And as I've pointed out to the Indians, they have their own territorial integrity issues with a, a neighbor to the north in China. I would also say that, you know, if China were to, you know, um, incur on their sovereign territory, I don't think Russia is going to come to their defense and, um, you know, d d defend themselves because I think Russia is going to play to China more than they play to play to India. Um, and, you know, we want to build our partnership with India. There's a reason why we're elevating the cloud. It's becoming much more important. There's a reason why would you um, more naval maritime activities with, with India than I think almost anyone one else, um, because we understand that, that we have very similar values. And, you know, so, and obviously we're watching um, what's taking place in Pakistan as well, a, a country that doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but we've seen, you know, Imran Khan visit Russia, you know, say some pretty negative things about the, the United States. And obviously, um, if Pakistan wants closer ties um, to the United States, what Imran Khan is doing and, and stating and, you know, is a, an utter falsehood that um, he's undermining the, the constitution of Pakistan. And that's certainly a country that India ought to be paying attention to as well. And so. Congressman Shalit. Yeah, well, once again, I don't, I don't want to repeat, uh, you know, everything that, that Ami just said, because uh, he, he said it all, all so well. Um, re relative to the uh, India's abstention, for example, which, let's face it, is, is uh, disappointing. Uh, Ami and I will have an opportunity to discuss that with the ambassador this evening, because we're both having dinner uh, with the Indian ambassador. And I'm sure that'll, that'll come up, and I'm sure he'll have uh, many points of view about that, and we'll we'll uh, we'll listen to those, and we'll push back somewhat. But uh, um, and and Ami also mentioned the the various uh, the, the uh, caucuses that we have, um, and I, I was the uh, I am I was one of the founding uh, co-chairs of the uh, Taiwanese caucus. Uh, we started about twenty years ago. And, uh, and I'm the current co-chair of that caucus. And we were always second to the India caucus, but uh, the Taiwan caucus actually surpassed, I think we have 199 members or something like that, which is now the largest caucus, uh, even larger than India caucus. Um, now, the, the irony is that I happen to be not only the co-chair of the uh, Taiwan caucus, but also the India caucus. So, uh, so we love both caucuses and, and of course, both, both countries. But in all seriousness, I mean, you know, in, in Southeast uh, Asia, a lot of the nations, for one thing, you know, Europe seems a, a bit far away. And if you don't have to uh, take on the Russians unnecessarily, you know, there's some reticence, I think, to do that. They'd maybe prefer to stay neutral. It is somewhat uh, disappointing, you know, but nonetheless, you know, it, it is a fact that many of them, and that was the principal location in the world that did uh, abstain. Much of the rest of the world, uh, you know, express their condemnation for, for Putin's actions with respect to, to Ukraine. Um, and you have maybe a couple cases when it comes to Vietnam and India, they do have 
you know, Russian weaponry left over from, you know, an earlier era. Uh, and, and when they're facing uh, China, they don't necessarily, I think, want to make uh, an, an enemy when they're going to need, uh, you know, either additional equipment or spare parts or a whole range of things from, from the Russians. So I think if they didn't have uh, to alienate them, they they chose not to do so, but it is it is a bit disappointing. I'll be honest with you. You know, you you'd think that uh, this clearly you couldn't have a more uh, a more uh, open example of a country invading another mm-hmm. country. There's absolutely no excuse for what Russia did in in attacking. Uh, Ukraine, and we've seen because the Ukrainians, their their military forces and their people, um, fought back uh, so bravely that we're now seeing you know massacres and you know war crimes and you know mass graves and, and all this stuff. But Putin should be held accountable. I mean, the man is a war criminal, and and hopefully one day he will be held accountable for the the crimes that he's committed. Congressman, we're nearing the end of this dialogue, and we'd like to give each of you a chance to share your final thoughts and reflections. But we've had two very interesting questions that have come in uh, through the chat line, and maybe we can share them with you and if you would like to respond to them in your closing reflections. The first question is, um, we've talked about the lessons that uh, China has learned and maybe Russia has learned, but what are the lessons that the U.S. has learned? about Russia's unprovoked invasion? How should we change our behavior? How should we interpret what's happened? And then the second very interesting question was, um, and Congressman Shabbat, Shabbat, it relates to your very interesting point about moving from strategic ambiguity to uh, strategic clarity in the case of Taiwan. And the question is, uh, what would we gain if we do that now? So if I can reverse the order and offer final first comments to Congressman Chabot. Thank you. I missed the last question, what you, what you said about that. What was the last question? It was actually about your comment on um, moving from strategic ambiguity on Taiwan to moving to strategic clarity on Taiwan. And the question that came in from our audience was, what would be the advantage of doing that? Yeah, I, I think the, I'll take a second one first. Uh, the advantage um, of strategic clarity is, I think, avoiding the military confrontation um, altogether because China would know uh, that we're going to be there, that we would act militarily. And I think they're much less likely uh, if they know for a fact that the United States will, will be there. I don't think they want to engage in war with the United States, but I think they want to take over Taiwan. Um, and I think if we leave it ambiguous, if you look at you know, the U.S. behavior on on some occasions, I think Afghanistan uh, is is a is an example of, of that. I think when we and I'm not saying that that uh, a lot of people didn't think it was time to pull out of Afghanistan. We've been there 20 years, but the way we pulled out of Afghanistan, I think, sent out a message of weakness to the world's bad actors. And I think that's one of the reasons that Putin thought he could get away with with Ukraine and that we wouldn't necessarily um, act on that. So um, and now on the uh, um, on, on U.S. lessons, I think the lesson that w- probably we should take from uh, from uh, from Ukraine is that we need to provide aid earlier and deterrence earlier in the process. We're rushing to try to get uh, the aid that the Ukrainians need here at kind of the 11th hour. Um, you know, we knew for months and months and months 
uh, that this was likely to happen, but we really didn't step up uh, getting lethal aid into their hands quickly enough. And they needed air power. I, I think it's disgraceful, um, this whole MiGs uh, scenario where, you know, these are the people on the ground fighting uh, the, the Russians. And they say they need planes. By God, we ought to get them planes. Um, and the planes were available. And, and I think it was embarrassing, the West's ultimate response. And the fact, they still don't, don't have them. Um, so just to, to boil it all down, um, we need to get uh, the, the, the necessary defensive weaponry into the hands of a country like Ukraine. And, 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 and you, can project, you can say Taiwan is the same thing. We need to get them what they need uh, in advance, not wait until it's too late. I'll yield back. I think for my, I'll take the first question first. I think what the United States has learned is multilateral coalitions matter. And I think the the fact that NATO came together as quickly as it did, didn't just happen by chance. And you know, we'll have um, Deputy Secretary um, Sherman in committee, full committee tomorrow. And I've pointed this out to her. The work that the administration did over the last year, rebuilding our relationship with NATO, rebuilding that, that, that coalition, all came to fruition with the invasion. The same thing I would say with our relations with the European Union, that you know, early on, President Biden visited Europe and you know, made the case that America is back. But then all, you know, certainly in the, the, the months leading up to the invasion of Ukraine, there was a, a, a ton of work put into under getting everyone to, to the same place, because I think there was a recognition that um, sanctions by the United States alone were not gonna, gonna work. And you know, the, the, the fact that these sanctions came together as quick as they did and are as biting as they are. And in fact, I, I think the sanctions have gone even further than I, I would have expected. Certainly they, they're going further than um, Mr. Putin expected. I, I think that matters. That's, standing together of like-minded, like-valued countries um, in, in a common cause. That matters. And I think you've seen that same effort you know, with the trilateral relationship with the, the Japanese and, and Koreans. Certainly, we talked about the Quad earlier. I think that certainly um, matters. The, the real engagement in Southeast Asia, not because of China, but understanding Southeast Asian centrality and importance to dynamic economies of, of the region, that matters, you know, when I was in the Philippines pre-pandemic, our relation was was really bad. They didn't want anything to do with us. Well, thank you, China, for your gray zone tactics and for the Filipinos recognizing, hey, we really do need the, the, the U.S. engaged in, in our region. And, um, you know, so those multilateral coalitions, that economic engagement, matters. You know, uh, Stephen, uh, Congressman Shabbat and I were supporters of the TPP. Obviously, that fell apart in a bipartisan way, unfortunately. But we do need to have a real economic engagement in the region. And you know, we're hopeful to see, as the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework comes together, a real framework for, for economic engagement in a bilateral, multilateral way. Um, that's good, not just for us and you know, um, the, the other partners, but for all the countries in the region, including China. And I think that's possible. So 
I think the lessons that, that we can learn is if we stand together on our values and principles, um, I think the values of democracy can defeat the values of autocracy. If we try to do it on our own, you know, in today's 21st century world, I think that's what the autocrats like Putin or Xi Jinping are counting on. And we may not be able to do it by ourselves. Congressman, we're delighted that you were able to join us today. You know, Congressman Barry, in one of your introductory comments, you reflected on this incredible period of prosperity and stability that the U.S. has presided over with our allies and our partners for many years. And we also reflected together on the fact that one of the cornerstones of America's security and foreign policy has been its bipartisan nature. And you two, if we may say this, are proof that this very proud tradition in U.S. foreign and security policy stands today. We thank you for your leadership. We thank you for being with us. And we hope that we have a chance to be together again very soon. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.